Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principal and author of the books School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Hey there, Jethro, catching up on the book front, are we? That's right. Happy Monday. (laughs) Happy Monday to you. So what are we talking about today? Well, this is a big week because tomorrow my book officially goes it's available. It launches. It's here. How exciting is that? <laughs> That's fantastic. So what is this tone that you've written? Yes, this one is called How to Be a Transformative Principal. And it's basically a compilation from everything that I have taken from my 500 episodes of Transformative Principal and put it all into one little book, which is a daunting and seemingly impossible task. And yet I did it. Well done, you. That's fantastic. So you've got these 500 podcast episodes. You do some master coaching for principals and for other administrators. What was your organizing principle? What were you really looking to do when you put this book together? So what I was hoping to be able to do was when somebody gets a job as a principal, I want them, or if they're trying to become a principal, I want them to take this book and say, what are the things that I actually need to do? What do I need to pay attention to and what do I need to focus on? And we spend a lot of time in education focusing on things that honestly don't really matter all that much, And but we put a ton of effort and energy into those, but they don't matter when it comes to actually being a transformative principle. Well, and I will say as, as an experienced interviewer that this is the moment I leap in and say, well offer some examples. <laughs> what, what, kind of, what kinds of things are people spending time on that they just... Yeah, so I think the first thing to recognize is that if you are spending all of your time on things that are not useful, then you're going to be wasting your time. So I'll, I bring up this chart here to show you the nine things that we talk about. And this is really vital for us to understand just as we get started, because if you don't do these things, then it doesn't matter whatever else you're doing. It's not going to matter. So I have this arranged in a three by three grid. And we talk about things that you do that focus on the individual, things that focus on a few people and things that focus on many people. So you can see the light orange, orange and purple progression there. And then going down the side, we have internal 
and then external and then holistic. And so there are there are things that you need to do that fall into one of these areas. So the first one is you've got to start with your own self-care. Taking care of yourself as a human being first as a school principal can be very challenging. Principals is the job where you are pulled in so many different directions. The students want something. The teachers want something else. The Board of Education wants something else. The state legislature wants something different. And then your superintendent wants something else from you as well. Then you have the parents who also have their own agendas and things that they want. And then you have your family that has their needs as well. And if you don't do something to take care of yourself, you're going to burn out. And I've seen this hundreds of times with amazing principals who just kind of lost their fire and and just couldn't keep going. And it's really tragic because it doesn't have to be that way. And that's a very common thing in education anyway, is for educators to burn out early. Sure. Well, we're seeing that in droves with the pandemic and everything else oh, that's going yeah. on. Yeah, because it's been so challenging and people have been, been, had so much pressure on them. So when you move from yourself, the individual, to few, you start thinking about how to support others and how to get support for yourself. And once you've taken care of your self-care, you start realizing, I need a little bit more help, and this is an area where I need help, and you can start identifying those. After that, once you start getting help for yourself, you start seeing that there are things on your plate that aren't getting done because you've taken care of yourself and you've gotten some support, and then you need to start thinking about delegating things out to people. Now, for some reason, (laughs) this is crazy in education, for some reason, we are totally comfortable delegating all of the most important stuff that we do every day, which is teaching, we delegate delegate that to teachers all the time. But then we don't delegate anything else, and principals think they need to take it all on themselves. And again, you just can't do that. And so you need to delegate out to other people and get other people involved in making decisions, in determining where your school is going, how you're going to get there. All those things, you can't just do it all on your own. So, so you're classifying this, if I read your chart correctly, as, as the vision component, right, of what a principal should be doing. And it's interesting because it occurs to me in listening to you talk that you've got administrators who have different vision responsibilities, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got principals who are hopefully when they're dealing with the many, creating a vision for that particular building. And you know, certainly my experience on the school board is that you develop an awareness that every building has different needs because of the community that they're in and the population that they're serving. But then if you move up the the feeding chart, you're going to get to the superintendent who's developing a vision, hopefully, for the district as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And the real key difference here is that your vision as a school principal has to be unique to your school even if it's very similar to other things. And it also has to be aligned with the district vision. You can't have a district vision that says we are all about um, vocational education. And then your school's vision is we are only interested in kids going to a four-year university. No vocational tech is going to be talked about here. (laughs) Like, obviously that just doesn't work. But the, the way this relates to delegation is that when you're delegating things, you have to have that vision that says, here's what our purpose is, because you shouldn't be delegating things that don't matter to that vision. And you shouldn't be doing things that don't matter to that vision, because it's a complete waste 
of your and everybody else's time. And so you those things are intertwined and they build upon each other. And if you're delegating without knowing what your vision is, then you're going to have a hard time. And if you have a vision, but you're not delegating, you're never going to reach your vision. And this is where the, uh, you know, one of your other boxes, it seems, comes into play, or one of your other observations, which is the fundamental concept of communication within an organization. Exactly. Because if the superintendent's not telling the principals what the vision is, and then the principal is not providing feedback on how that's playing out in the school, then all of this falls apart. Exactly. So the observation is so important, and I'm so glad you keyed it that way, because in education, we often think that observations are all about seeing how well teachers are teaching, and that is totally the wrong approach. The observation, <laughs> and, and here's why. When you do evaluations for teachers, like 97% of teachers are above average, excellent, exceptional teachers. Almost so every Keeler standard. Yes. So, so you've got to like, you've got to really be doing a poor, poor job to not be considered a good teacher. And that's because of how our evaluation system is set up. It's just not designed and neither is our culture as a system designed to give critical feedback and to show teachers where they can improve. But that's not the point anyway. That's not why we should be doing evaluations or observations. We should be doing those observations to see if our vision is being implemented And then if it's not being implemented, that's where we go back and work on making sure the vision is understood, making sure people get what they're supposed to be doing and communicating that vision effectively so that people know what it is that we are trying to accomplish. Now, this is a controversial opinion, so I need to take a little bit more time on it because we we think in education, observations are for evaluation, but Mm -hmm. they're just not. If you know what the vision is, and you can see how it's being implemented, then teachers are going to be successful on their evaluations. And I I have a story to illustrate this. Okay. So a district that I'm working with in Wisconsin, I was out there in January and was talking to them about how to do some different things. And they said um, the, the goal of our training was for students to have voice and choice in their learning. And so the whole purpose of the time there is for kids to have voice and choice. So I'm talking with a second grade teacher and she says, well, the curriculum is coming up um, on this particular theme. And in order to communicate this theme, I read this specific book. And so on Monday, I have to read this book because that's what the curriculum says that I have to do. And I said, but that's not in line with what we're training you to do here. So how are you going to reconcile that? And she said, well, I don't, I can't go against the curriculum. And I said, why not? Well, because the curriculum says that we have to do this and that's our only, we just have to do it. And I said, but if our training today is about voice and choice and the vision for the school is to improve voice and choice in what students are doing, uh, that's one aspect of the vision. That's not the whole thing. Then (laughs) shouldn't you do that and improve voice and choice and, and give kids more options about what books they read and how they get to that theme and all that. And she said, well, I can't do that because if my principal walks in and sees me doing that, then I'll probably get in trouble. And I said, that's interesting because your principal brought me here to tell you to do more voice and choice. So how are you going to get in trouble? Well, because the curriculum says we need to do this. And we just went in this yeah. vicious cycle. And I said, You've got, you've got to understand that the purpose here is not to follow the curriculum. 
the purpose is for your kids to learn. One of the ways we think it's best for them to learn is to give them voice and choice in what they're reading and how they understand the themes and all that. And she said, so are you saying that I can not do the curriculum piece? I said, that is absolutely what I'm saying. And you can go ask your principal if if you are going to get in trouble if you do this other thing. And sure enough, she did. And the principal was like, of course you don't have to read that specific book on that specific day. You can read any book that helps the kids understand what the theme is, what they're supposed to learn from this. And it's not just that one thing. But it was so hard for the teacher to think outside of what she was because the vision previously had been compliance and doing the curriculum exactly as it says. One of my least favorite words in education is implementing with fidelity. And what that means is that you follow the curriculum and do it exactly as it should. And all that does is take away your own voice and choice, takes away the power that you have as a teacher and makes you a robot. And I believe that if we're going to have teachers be robots, we might as well just have robots teaching our kids because we don't need teachers if they're not going to use what makes them teachers, what makes them give them in. Come on, Jethro, don't give them any ideas. (laughs) No, look, I think this is actually a really important point, and it, it, it neatly captures, I think, a lot of the things that we've talked about, particularly in the sense that we are promoters of critical thinking, right? Right. And if one of the goals is to give children the capability to be critical thinkers, then ideally teachers are modeling that behavior themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, and this is this is where we get into the widget piece of, of contemporary education, that that people are losing sight of the role of a curriculum, which is to make certain skills and information known to the students, to give them a chance to learn certain things. But the how of getting there doesn't have to be prescribed. And I think this is exactly what you're saying, right? It's not that you do book X on day Y, but that you find the best tool to teach concept A to the children. Yeah, and here's two points to clarify that. Number one, your kids are different every single year. So you get a new batch of kids. So they are not going to be exactly the same. So you have to change and adapt to meet their needs every year. Mm The second piece, one thing you'll notice is not on this chart, is anything about an instructional framework, whether that's international baccalaureate, using PLCs, data-driven, inquiry-based, project-based learning. Time out. (laughs) What's PLC for the Uh, non-geek amongst (laughs) us? No problem. Professional learning communities. And the reality Ah. is none of those things matter because every single one of them can be successful if, if... Your vision is that we're going to use that. So I was working with a school and they wanted to adopt international baccalaureate. The school was a total mess beforehand. So (laughs) after they adopted international baccalaureate, they all were on the same page. Everybody understood what their role was and the school was thriving and prospering and it was great. But it wasn't because of international baccalaureate. It was because the principal now had a clear vision. That was the difference. She could have chosen anything else to implement and it would have had the same result because they took time, they communicated, they understood what their goals were and they worked together to figure out how to implement this new thing. It was not about the instructional framework. It was all about the vision and everybody's commitment or lack thereof to that that defines a successful school. 
So yeah, I, we, we saw that in Vermont when we were implementing a couple of magnet themed schools to help address mm -hmm. socioeconomic diversity within uh, specific neighborhoods in Burlington. And one of them was an art school. And mm -hmm. that was hugely challenging. But because there was a very clear vision to implement that approach to pedagogy and to incorporate the arts into various aspects of the curriculum, it really came together. And I think what was fascinating, by the way, just as an aside, was that we managed to flush out all of these artistic talents in our educators yeah. that really weren't getting expression uh, prior to that. And I'm not saying that every school should become an art school. Um, certainly some should, but it's really fascinating when you bring a vision to a particular organization, a particular school, and you see how people respond to that. There's a lot of surprises, I think, that can emerge when you do that. Yeah. Not all schools should become art schools, but every school should develop its own unique vision. Because yeah. if they do, then all those things will come out. And if your vision is so clear that, that people say, I want to work there, or heavens no, I don't want to work there. Right, both are good. Both are very good, right? <laughs> yeah, we definitely had some um, teachers say, you know, this is just not for me. Yeah. And that was fine, you know, because you can find other places for them to teach and so forth. Exactly. And the thing is, is that when you have that clear vision, then not only do you repel those who aren't interested, you also attract those who are. And so if somebody's mm -hmm. not on board with the idea of an international baccalaureate going back to this school, if they yeah, know yeah. anything about that and they say, oh, that's not for me, then they're not going to want to teach there. But the thing is, is so often you're just another school and there's nothing unique about you. And so why would anybody want to change anything? Why would anybody want to, to try to get there? Because it's just another school. It doesn't matter. I sat down for an interview as a principal with a prospective teacher at my school. This wonderful young woman was fresh out of college and all she wanted was a job, right? That was it. So she <laughs> came to my school. It was a very challenging Title I school. And there were a yeah. lot of uh, socioeconomic challenges. There was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of um, kids not having what they needed, kids not having the skills to know how to behave in a typical classroom. And this wonderful young woman sat down and I could tell as soon as she walked in the door, this was not the place for her. And no offense, there's no hard feelings, but she had this vision of what school would be like. And she taught in a very high socioeconomic status school that had mm. lots of kids who came ready with skills and everything already and no behavior problems. And I said, this school is very challenging. Here are the things that you're going to see on a regular basis. And as I was talking to her, her eyes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I said, I have a feeling that you probably don't see yourself working here. And she said, this doesn't sound like what I thought teaching was. And I said, let's not continue the interview. It's not worth your time. It's not worth my time. Let's, why don't you go to another school and try to get a job there? Uh, no yeah, hard feelings. Yeah. And and because I knew what our school was about and what we expected of our teachers, I was able to explain that to her. And she then knew this is not a good place for me. And that's the kind of approach we got to take. Right. Which actually feeds us very neatly into the bottom line right. of your chart here, because we've done internal issues. We've done external issues. Now you're talking about more holistic 
concerns yeah. for these principles. And so, you know, obviously that's the hiring piece where you're dealing with a few people. Um, it feeds off of your, um, I think, objective of having good relationships with people, which yeah. is the individual piece of that. Well, and that's because every single person needs to feel individualized in your approach to them. Now, you, there's there's big data out there that says this is how we should do things and this is what everything means. But the reality is if you're in that 5% who don't get something, you 100% don't get it and you feel like a total failure. Mm -hmm. And so right. it's all well and good if the school has 95% of kids do this well or whatever. But that 5%, you have to recognize that with everybody, everybody needs to be approached as an individual. And you can't do things that are... Um, that are blasted out to everybody and make people feel like they are being treated as an individual it requires an individual approach. And that's why relationships are so key and why you have to think of them as one-on-one -on -one type situations. Okay. Totally agree with that in terms of how we should be interacting with each other. But the obvious question right, that you would hear from principals, I would assume is that I agree with what you're saying, but it takes time. So yeah. where do I find the time to individualize my relationships with all of these people who are running in and out of my office, who are teaching down the hallway with the students who are in front of me? You know, it's it, it, this is the thing, right? This is always the challenge, the time suckage of being in the educational system. Yeah. Well, that is the job. That is the job. <laughs> and so if you, if you, yeah, if you do all these other things, then you create time for yourself to spend working on individual relationships. And yeah. this is the beauty of this is that it doesn't have to take um, a lot of time. It feels like it does because truly cumulatively it does. But one little three second interaction with somebody can make a huge difference. So I was at my kid's school the other day dropping them off. And I walked into the office and there were kids sitting in the office, obviously in trouble because you could tell by their gloomy faces. And then the secretary said to one of the kids, um, there's no talking. And she said the kid by name and then said, you should know that more than anyone, which oh, implied. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which implied that this kid has been in the office before. This is his the first, <laughs> yeah, his first interaction of the day. And she impacted that relationship, I would say, in a negative way by reminding him that he's always there and he should know better. And there was a better way to do that that didn't require that kid to be singled out and told, basically, you're a lifer. Yeah. So what would, your, what would that be? Yeah, that's the great question, right? What would that be? That, that would yeah. be something like, hey, so-and-so, I'm glad to see you today reminder i need you to be quiet in here because we're we're all trying to work can you do that for me totally different approach totally changes yeah. it and the tone with which she said her original comment and the tone with which i said my comment are different and those are either building or destroying relationships there's no there's no neutral connection there it's either you're building it or you're destroying it and every interaction goes one of those two ways and that's not a big deal. Like, that's just life. So if you strive to build every relationship, that's going to be great. Now, if she goes back later and apologizes to him and said, hey, 
I was out of line. I said that in a mean tone because I was frustrated because I was trying to get something done. And you were being loud. That's a totally different story. And that builds the relationship. But you can't go back and undo things you've done in the past. They're there. And they've <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And they've established that relationship. And so you have to do the best you can with what you got, which is what we all have to do. So would you say then, having finished this book and, and created this framework for, for approaching these things, that that interaction between that staff person, that secretary and the poor kid um, is, is a reflection of a culture within that school? Yeah. To what extent is that on the principal? Well, it, I believe that the principal is responsible for every good and bad thing that happens in their school. And you need to own it as the principal. And so all those little things that we've talked about all through this conversation, they all add up to the culture. The challenge right. the principals have is I had a principal come to me and say, hey, I need to fix my culture. And I said, well, let's <laughs> <laughs> let's start with taking care of yourself. What, how are you taking care of yourself? She said, well, I'm not. I'm working 14, 15 hour days. I'm sending emails all night long. I'm responding to emails after I put my kids in bed. And, you know, it's just nonstop. And I said, well, your staff is never going to believe that you really care about them until you start caring about yourself. So they're, if you're sending emails at 930 at night, they're thinking they need to be aware of those and paying attention to those. So you need to, t one, start taking care of yourself and then start building on these other things. She's like, okay, cool. So how do I fix my culture? <laughs> and, and that's all... Uh, everything that happens in a school builds up to the culture. It's like a, a domino. The culture is the big, huge domino that can be knocked over by a little tiny domino with a bunch of dominoes in between. But you can't just walk up to the domino that's the size of the Empire State Building and try to push it over because that's not going to happen. You've got to do all these other little things that build up to that. And so a lot of times we think, mm -hmm. I need to do something about the culture. I need to fix the culture. Well, the culture is it basically already set you can't do anything directly to affect that it, it's like my friend will parker says when you grow an apple tree you you nourish the ground you grow the tree you prune it you you take care of it over years and then it starts producing fruit and then that fruit you don't get to go pick the apple off and say oh you know what i wish this was a granny smith you don't get to change it at that point. It's all the little things that build up to it. And so you've got to start early planting those seeds, nurturing them, taking care of them. And eventually you'll get the kind of the, the culture is what kind of fruit the tree produces. That's really elegant. I like that a lot. I know. I wish I would have thought of it. And of course, I had that conversation with Will after I finished the book and already sent it to publish. So that's now gone, but that's okay. <laughs> well, that's just an utter failure. Of yeah. <laughs> well, look, every author, every author has those moments. Trust yep. me, I, I, I know it well. So it's, it's a really, I think, powerful structure for principals and other administrators to review and reflect upon, you know, in terms of what they want that end goal to be. Um, that's it's it's a terrific thing. It it does seem because we've been talking for at least two years, mm -hmm. and I've certainly heard about this project. It seems like this has been a little bit of a struggle to bring to press. Well, it really has, and that last point about hearing things after I'm done with the book has been yeah. what's kept me from doing it. The great thing about a podcast is if I learn something new, I can just do a new episode and publish it, and that's great. Right. 
But with a book, it's it's a finite thing and it's done. And and I've really been challenged to figure out when do I actually write this book? And my friend Kimberly Miles has been telling me for years that I should write this book because the truth is after about probably 50 interviews, I knew what this structure was. I knew these mm-hmm. nine things were what mm-hmm. made up a school. And I knew it had nothing to do with the instructional framework because I looked at all these different people and everybody in education thinks it's about the instructional framework and it's not. In fact, I whole, I had a whole chapter on that early on and said, why am I writing this? I know it doesn't matter, but I felt this need to include it in the book, but yeah. it, it just doesn't matter. And so the things that we focus on a lot in education are the things that are frankly pointless and in, and don't matter. They matter because we need to do them, but they don't matter because it doesn't matter that it's there or it could be something completely different. An art magnet versus a technical magnet, both can be wildly successful, but it's not mm-hmm. the the art or the technical that makes it successful. It's the vision and it's the culture and it's how things are created in that school. So I really no, struggled. That's a great with that. observation, Jethro. Yeah. You really struggle. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was just saying, I really struggled with getting, saying this is, I've done enough to know that these are the right answers, uh, even though I knew they were the right answers early on. Yeah, well, without turning this into writer therapy, which yeah, is very exactly. easy. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I am grappling with many of these same issues with respect to the rise of the digital mob. And in fact, I've even trying to organize my thoughts and various things that I've collected over the years and so forth and realizing that the germ of this project emerged six years ago. And it's it's been a struggle for so many different reasons to, to make this coalesce into the whole that I think it can be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the pressure is building to do that. So we'll figure it out. But yeah, you know, some of these projects are just hard. Yeah, and and it's a different kind of hard than I've ever experienced before, and that's mm. something that I think is really important. Um, because it, it's one thing for us to talk and and chit chat and share our ideas and stuff, <laughs> but to actually yeah. get those ideas to be communicated without being able to see or hear the other person and know whether or not your ideas are coming across correctly how you want them to. That to me is one of the beautiful challenges of writing that is so frustrating, but that I love so much as well, because you, you have to have your ideas clear enough that you can articulate them and that you can help other people see what it is that you're trying to do without the feedback that comes from head nods or smiles or laughter or whatever the case, excuse me, the case may be. That's really well said, right? I mean, you're, you're basically putting your voice out into the void. You're, you're letting it go. You don't know what the response is. You can't adjust on the fly the way we do in conversation, right? Right. It's, it's a very different uh, dynamic between two individuals. And mm-hmm. yeah, that, that piece of it, that's kind of fun because, you know, yeah. if you're enough of an egotist to write anything, you're just <laughs> glad people are reading <laughs> But yeah. but it, the the mechanics the you don't know you know what it is for me I think and this is this is an ongoing issue I think for a lot of people it's the finality of it right you have mm-hmm. to make specific decisions about the contents the flow of the narrative the words you include and that that inability unless you self publish which is a different thing but the inability to go back to a 
published book and interject that great anecdote or the mm -hmm. comment you got from a reader. Yeah, it's it's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. Putting all of that aside, we, we definitely will have to do a writer therapy show all by itself. But you got it done. Got it Tomorrow done. is your launch day. What's up? What are you doing? So I'm actually, so part of the other challenge here is that there are so, there's so much wisdom out there. So I've done 500 episodes of transformative principle. There's no way I can put all those into a book. In fact, I transcribed all those episodes and there is over 2 million words. So this book is about 60,000 words and it's about 2 million for all of the podcasts. And that's, that's a lot. So the other thing is that there's so much wisdom out there. Not all of it is contained in this book. And I am yeah. egotistical, of course, because I'm a writer. But <laughs> I am I am not so <laughs> egotistical to think that I have all of the answers. So what we're doing is doing a the part of the book launch is four sessions of, uh, of a celebration. But then it's also going to be a, uh, a conversation and writing opportunity for people to add their answers to these nine frames that I've shown earlier. So we're going to go through and write another book with all the participants that are there. And huh. it's going to be a companion piece to this book that people will be able to access when it's, when that one is finished. But the idea is that I want a principal to open up the page, the chapter on vision and see all these different ideas about how to communicate and explain your vision, how to develop it so that it's not just what I've said, but short individual uh, suggestions and tips from people who are in education and have ideas about that as well. So my goal was to get 200 people to come to my book launch. And so mm -hmm. far I have about 150 registered and it's pretty exciting to see all these people that are coming and going to contribute to it. And with 150 people writing about 1,250 words or so, um, that's going to put us way over the goal of getting a 60,000 word uh, sure. book yeah, out there. Yeah, well, you'll do some editing, of course. Yep, do some editing, trim it down a little bit. And it's not going to be in like, you know, a, a good flowing sentences or anything like that. It's just going to be people's responses <laughs> to that specific prompt at the beginning. So it's going to be really fascinating and something that uh, I don't think many people have done before and should be a neat experience for people who are involved in it. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Where can people go if they want to uh, join the book launch? Yeah, if you want to do that, jethrojones.com slash how to be, how the number two and B is where that is. And that's happening this week. So there are four sessions, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And then, ah. and then that's going to be done. And if it's really successful, then I will do something else um, to, to further that and keep it going. But I think there's real potential for some really powerful things for other people to experience and take away from this as well. So it's not, it's not all about me and the book, but it's about growing our profession and becoming better as a group. Well, there's a couple of observations that I think are worthwhile from that. Number one, I think it's cool that you're exploring different modes of publication, because one of the things that I've certainly been observing is the extent to which new technologies, new resources are really reshaping how information gets out in the world. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it seems to me that you're also helping to build the very kind of community that you're talking about in your book. 
um, which is only to the good for people who often, I think, can feel isolated, can feel overwhelmed, uh, can feel uh, you know, some sense of frustration about getting good information and good ideas. So mm-hmm. that's, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a really neat experience. I think it's going to be kind of cathartic for some people to get in there and give their ideas on these topics and and give their their real experience. And that's that's what that book is going to be called, Real Experience, How to Be a Transformative Principal. And I'm kind of uh, – I'm pretty excited about that piece. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, that, <laughs> well, it's great. We've got another show lined up then by default. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Once you get that done. I think um, just out of a sense of obligation that, um, you know, in terms of the cyber traps piece, it seems to me that, you know, of the various grid squares that you created, um, the ones that seem most relevant are communication and relationships, because we talk about that a huge amount. And so I'll be curious to see if the advent of technology creeps into those particular topics as you're going through them well and yeah the exciting piece about this is that communication you have to use technology you have to be able to mass communicate with people but you also have to do it in an individualized and personalized way and i think technology really is the key to that because it's it's nearly impossible to do it otherwise and so you have to have a balance of mass communication and individual communication and here's the thing with this book launch for example I did post about it on Twitter and pinned it to my uh, Twitter profile. But the thing is, is I did not, um, I didn't really broadcast it out on there very much. Everybody who's coming, I've personally invited. And I did that very intentionally to underscore how important that is and how that's actually how you get results. So I have Mm -hmm. like 3,000 people on my email list. Very few from that would ever uh, join this launch party because I just sent it out. But if I reach out to individual people and say, Hey, would you like to come? Are you interested? Then I'll get a better response and I'll have that great experience. So I went through all my people who follow me on Twitter, sent them all a direct message and said, do you want to come? Went through my LinkedIn and almost everybody on there. I sent a direct message asking them if they're interested and people care about personal touches. People care about hearing directly from you. And, and that's what we need to do um, is, is do that as school leaders. Excellent summation right there. Well, good luck with this, Jethro. I will be fascinated to see how it all turns out, and we will undoubtedly be reporting back at some point to let people know. Yes, I'll be exhausted on Monday for our next podcast explaining everything (laughs) that I did, because this week is looking very intense, for sure. I'm sure it is. Well, I will do the show prep for next week. (laughs) (laughs) We will get things launched with a little bit of an update from you on how this rolled out. Alrighty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, the development of a Cybertrap-free school culture, and the challenges <laughs> of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions, topic, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. 
If you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review and buy Jethro's book. We appreciate having you here and look forward to seeing you in our next episode. I second that message. <laughs>